Imagine you're a law student here in the city and you're looking to land a high-profile position at a firm here. Some of you already are law students, and so you require a little less imagination this morning than the rest of us. You go to a recruiting event here locally and meet with representatives from various firms, and you meet a woman who says she's from Ropes, and you're thinking, Ropes and Gray, that's the most prestigious firm here in Boston. You're offered a position and you gladly accept, and your dream of working and living in downtown Boston are coming true. And on the day that you were supposed to begin, you head downtown to the iconic Prudential Center. And as you look up at the building, you wonder which of the 17 floors that Ropes and Gray operates out of that you'll be working on. Well, you don't know what floor you're supposed to go to, so you call your representative and you ask. And she says, floor, no, there's, there's just one floor in our facility. And you just come in the front door. And after some back and forth, you realize that you had signed up to work for Ropes, but it wasn't Ropes and Gray in downtown Boston. It was Ropes and Smith in Paducah, Kentucky. Now, no offense to the the Midwest, I'm from a small town in the Midwest and I love that I'm from there, but in this situation, you'd obviously be disappointed. The firm had Ropes in the name, but it wasn't the firm that was gonna get you where you wanted to go. And in the same way, when we look at the name Jesus, it doesn't tell us all that we need to know. We need to know exactly who he is. And thankfully, in our passage today, in the book of Matthew and in scripture as a whole, God goes to great lengths to show us exactly who he is, this Jesus, and what we are getting when we decide to follow him. So in, this morning, we're in Matthew 14, 22 through 36. If you don't have a Bible, you can find one under your seat, and we'll be on page 820. That's Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 36. The larger numbers are the chapter numbers, and the smaller numbers are the verse numbers. Verse 22. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was by this time a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water, and he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got in the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land at Genesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. The message of this text today is take heart in who Jesus is and put your faith in him. As it begins in verse 22, we see Jesus sending his disciples and the crowds away, and he's finally going to get the solitude that he was trying to get earlier in this chapter in verse 13. But in his compassion, 
He takes care of the material needs of the people by dividing loaves and fishes to satisfy the hunger of many thousands of people in a desolate place. And this is an echo of God's care for Israel in the wilderness when they needed food. And like Moses, Jesus goes up onto a mountain to meet with God, and, and Moses is, was a mediator between God and Israel. But he's just an arrow that points to Jesus, the true and better mediator between God and all those who trust in him. Now in the parallel passage in the Gospel of John, it tells us that Jesus withdraws partially because they were going to make him king by force. The people were ready to throw off Roman occupation. Because of their idolatry, they had been taken from their land 600 years before, and they were allowed to return, but they had never regained national sovereignty. Now, there had been attempts 200 years before Jesus to gain that through Maccabean, uh, the Maccabean revolt, but they didn't gain any lasting independence or peace. There was no lasting kingdom God had promised that a king was coming and that his kingdom would be forever. And these people saw the miracles that Jesus was doing and how he was proclaiming a kingdom that was coming and showing us what life in that kingdom would look like in uh, the Sermon on the Mount. They see all these things and they want him to be their king. They want to force him to be their king. The kind of king that they had in mind who would free them from their Roman oppressors. If Jesus was simply seeking power in the way that we often see worldly leaders do, this moment would have been the perfect time to leverage his position. He wouldn't have to declare himself king. He'd be simply following the will of the people. Hey, this is what the people want. I'm just doing what they want me to do. I'm being who they want me to be. And I can imagine that, you know, today, Jesus, if Jesus was doing this today, his sort of like campaign managers would be losing their minds at such a lost opportunity. But Jesus is not that kind of king. His kingdom is not of this world, and his primary mission, as the disciples would come to discover, was not about political freedom for Israel, but spiritual freedom for all who call upon his name. He's not like Herod in the beginning of the book of Matthew who murdered young children to prevent Jesus from taking power from him. He's not like Herod, the other Herod in this chapter, whose use of power for himself ended in the unjust death of John the Baptist. Jesus is secure in who he is. He doesn't need good PR. He doesn't need to gain legitimacy by eliminating threats to his power or by drumming up popular support from the people. Jesus knows that his power and authority come from the Father and that the means of ushering in the kingdom would not be by taking power as an earthly king and keeping it at all costs, but by following the Father's plan to give himself up as a sacrifice for all. He sends the crowds away and knowingly sends his disciples into danger in order to be alone with his father. And this makes sense if Jesus is God because Jesus' most important relationship is the one between him and his father. And what he's doing here on earth is providing a means for us to participate in that relationship of love between the father, son, and Holy Spirit. It's been going on from eternity. So Jesus goes away to be with his father and in doing so, he shows us who he is and where his power comes from. Secondarily, he's showing us that we should seek solitude to pray, to seek power not from ourselves or from others, but from our Father. Times of silence are important. And those of you who went on the retreat last week got to experience some of that, some time alone with God, and we build those things in so that we have those opportunities, and that may have been the first time you had an opportunity to do that for a while. 
And honestly, I'm not so great at doing this. And this passage is a challenge to me and to all of us to sacrifice, to seek out those times. And students, I know that this is an exciting time in your lives where you're trying to balance studying and participating in and, and Christian community, hopefully, and balancing friendships and all the fun experiences that are available to you in this time. But make time to be alone with your father. You might be out of school and you're working in a demanding career. Taking time to be with your father isn't some burdensome command, but a call to freedom from the tyranny that work can become if we make it primary in our lives. And parents, I know from experience that silent moments are few and far between, and balancing being a good worker and a good dad is so difficult for me right now. And there aren't a lot of quiet moments apart from sacrificing sleep. Do we have to do to be alone with your father? And one way Julie and I accomplish this is by regularly sending each other away when we're both exhausted. And she does this even when I'm being stubborn and tells me that I need to go. I know it's easier to parent together when both of you are running at about 50% cognitive function because maybe the two of you together equal one like functional adult. But uh, it's worth sending one another away to be alone with God. So Jesus is praying on the mountain, finally getting the solitude that he'd been seeking. And the disciples were having a different experience. They were rowing against the storm and they weren't making good time. And in verse 25, it says that it was the fourth watch. And so this would have been between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. in the morning. Jesus had been praying all night for hours and they had been fighting the storm that entire time. Now, despite the life or death struggle that the disciples had been enduring all night, they still had some ability to reason. They see somebody walking toward them on the water and people don't do that. Now, it was a popular belief in the day that evil spirits resided in the sea, and so they concluded, hey, it must be a ghost, and they were terrified. Their premises were correct. Someone was walking on the water toward them, and people don't do that. The conclusion, however, was incorrect. It wasn't a ghost. It was God. In Scripture, we see time after time that fear is the natural response to divine encounters, the people in the boat were experienced sailors. They were managing in this storm, even if they were struggling. And they had been through storms before. But when they see Jesus walking at them on the water, they're confronted with a power that's not only unmanageable, but unimaginable. Jesus wants them to know that this display of power that they're witnessing wasn't a danger to them, but was for their good. And so he calls out to them. Verse 27, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Jesus is no ghost, and he's not there to destroy them. His presence isn't one that should cause fear, but alleviate and eliminate fear. He sends his disciples into danger and then comes to them walking on the water because he wants them to know exactly who he is. And in the same way, God has given us a record, this record, to show us who he is. He is the God, the master of creation. He is Emmanuel, God with us, so we can take heart and be of good courage because he has come near. And as we recognize and take heart in who Jesus is, we must also place our faith in him. In verse 28, Peter boldly speaks up and asks to come out on the water with Jesus. And it seems like he makes it all the way to him. But when he sees the wind, he begins to fear. He begins to sink. He had stepped out in faith toward Jesus boldly, but he allows fear to overtake him, leading to doubt. And in sinking, he cries out to God, Lord, save me. 
Now it's important to recognize that when Peter calls out to Jesus to save him, he doesn't hesitate. Look down at verse 31. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him saying, oh you of little faith, why did you doubt? This rescue comes with a rebuke, but notice the order. Jesus doesn't let Peter struggle for a while, wondering whether or not Jesus is gonna save him. He doesn't give him a lecture on how he just needs to drum up more faith and pull himself up by his spiritual bootstraps and get back on the water. No. When Peter cries out to Jesus, Jesus immediately reaches down his hand and pulls him up. It's also important to recognize that Jesus does rebuke Peter. Peter's faith is smaller than Jesus wants it to be. One commentator says this about the nature of Peter's doubt. Peter's problem was not so much lack of intellectual conviction as the conflict between the evidence of his senses and the invitation of Jesus. What Peter sees and what Peter believes are at war with one another. Jesus wants Peter's little faith to grow so that fear no longer rules him. This is important because it shows us that God doesn't want us to sit and struggle when what we believe and what we see, what we experience, are in conflict with one another. When we're struggling with doubt, he doesn't say to us, well, you're sort of on your own until you manage to figure this out and have more faith in me. He wants us to cry out with what little faith that we have. And the power of our faith to save doesn't come from how much of it we have, but in who our faith or what our faith is in. And that's why it's so important to see who Jesus is exactly. He wanted Peter and he wants us to see who he is because knowing and trusting in him leads to a life of confidence as we walk through the fearful journey of life that leads to everlasting life with him. It's also important to see that this isn't the only time the disciples doubt. When Jesus gives his great commission in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples of all nations, some of the disciples are doubting. They had seen him die and rise again and there was still doubt residing in their hearts. He's sending out those who have some measure of doubt in him. And Jesus knew this, yet he still sends them out. And this shows us that while doubt may not be a good thing that we want in our lives, it can be a normal part of the Christian experience. Jesus saves and Jesus sends doubters. He uses those whose faith is in him, but at times that faith is small. We needed Jesus to raise us up when we first cried out to him to save us. And we'll need us to walk with us little faiths until we are passed on to be with him forever. So what kind of things cause you to doubt? What is causing you to fear this morning? As you walk toward Jesus, what's drawing your attention away from him? I have two examples this morning that might cause doubt by way of illustration this morning from the book Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. And this book is an incredible imaginative spiritual uh, journey that showcases the various trials that Christians may face in life. And if you haven't read it, I commend it to you. And if you wanna come read it and you promise to read it, I actually have a couple of copies. So if you come to me, I will give you a copy if you will promise to read it this morning. The first example I have is at the beginning of the book. And the story begins with the main character whose name is very creatively Christian. <laughs> and he's living in the equally creatively named city of destruction. Now Christian becomes aware of his sin and he's deeply burdened by it. But his family is confused by his newfound obsession with, with sin and forgiveness and eternal life and they think that he's lost his mind. 
And at the encouragement of evangelist, he flees the city. And the book says that the man began to run. Now he had not yet run far from his door before his wife and children, seeing him depart, bid him return. But the man put his fingers in his ears and ran on crying, life, life, eternal life. Now, as I said, this book, this book is, this parable is a, it's a metaphor, right? So it's not calling us to physically or relationally distance ourselves from our loved ones who don't believe, but that in some sense, when we put faith in Jesus, others will find it odd. And it may seem like a loss to those around us who don't yet believe. I think this can be particularly acute for those of you who've come to Christ more recently. Your family may be confused by your faith and that pressure to go back or at least relax some aspects of your newfound beliefs can be strong. And we're all called to love those around us who don't believe, but when we feel that pull to go back on following Jesus, we must plug our ears and run toward life. We plug our ears to these things because we know that they're appealing. We know that sometimes the messaging around us appeals to our hearts in ways that show that we're prone to believe that if, maybe if we didn't follow Jesus, life would be more convenient or comfortable or fulfilling. That maybe we're missing out by following Jesus. Our faith isn't a perfect Jesus, but our faith isn't always perfect and we're weaker than we'd often like to admit. And when we're feeling weak, we must plug our ears and remind ourselves that we have life, life, eternal life in Jesus. Now it's worth noting that in Bunyan's story, Christian's boldness to step out in faith ends up inspiring his family to follow on that same path. And I can't promise that it's gonna be the same for you, but your stepping out in faith boldly may inspire others to take the same path someday. The second example I have from the book is at the end. And Christian has been through various trials and struggles And he's come to the last and final battle, walking through the river of death. And Julie and I have been talking recently about how sort of weird and scary death is, even for the Christian. It's scary to think about that one day our bodies will die. And Christian is having the same experience. He comes up to the edge of the river and he wants to find another way around, but there's no other way around. He has to go through it. So he enters in. And he begins to doubt, and the water gets deep. He's sinking, and he's afraid that Christ has left him. He struggles with fear and doubt for some time, but all the while, his friend Hopeful is encouraging him. And the turning point in this part of the story is when Hopeful yells out to Christian, take courage or take heart. Jesus Christ makes you whole. And with this reminder, Christian cries out, Oh, I see him again, and he tells me, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you go through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. It then says this, then they both took courage, and after that, the enemy was as still as a stone and could no longer hinder them. Christian therefore felt firm ground and found that the rest of the river was but shallow. Thus, they both crossed over the river In life and in death, it's not that our faith is always so rock solid and full. The strength of our faith may fail at various times in our lives, and we may fail in the things we step out in faith to do for Jesus. But a weak faith in him is faith enough to save. 
So again, what's distracting you this morning? What's causing you to take your gaze off of Jesus? It could be some voices that you need to plug some ears, your ears to. It could be the fear that Christ isn't with you now in your struggle or that he won't be with you when it's time to pass on. It could be any number of things that are stoking the fires of fear and anxiety within you. Hebrews 1.11 gives us a definition of faith, and in the NIV it says this, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance in what we do not see. My encouragement to you is to put whatever faith you have in Jesus and ask him to give you more solid confidence in him despite what you cannot see this morning. You may be here this morning and you're just exploring Christianity and as you see who Jesus is, I urge you to put your faith in him. The Bible tells us that we've all sinned and fallen short of the commands that God has given everyone to follow, but that this Jesus, this Jesus that we're looking at this morning, died on a cross in your place to forgive you from the consequences of your sin, from my sin. So cry out to him this morning like Peter cried out and he will save you. For believers, there's an important encouragement and the encouragement that a Christian receives from Hopeful in Pilgrim's Progress. Hopeful directs Christians' attention to Jesus when he's doubting. and We ought to do the same for others. Now, when I was an undergrad, I had a dreams or maybe illusions of grandeur of participating in an ultra marathon, which is uh, a run that is 50,000 kilometers or more. Um, I never ended up running one of those, but I had a lot of friends that were in that community, and uh, there are a lo- there's a lot of support that's needed for these runners to make it uh, to the end. There are people who serve at stations along the way, giving out drinks and snacks and encouragement, saying, hey, you can do this, you can finish. And sometimes near the end of a race, a person will leave their station to walk or run alongside someone to help them finish. Their presence and their words help carry them to the end. Now in Mark 10, Peter says, when after Jesus gives the, uh, meets with the rich young ruler and tells how hard it's going to be to get into the kingdom and says that it's impossible with man, but it's possible with God, Peter's thinking, well, we've given up all these things for you. So he says this, He says, see, we have left everything and followed you. Now, Jesus could have swatted him down again and said, hey, look, you're going to get eternal life, so just be quiet and wait. But he doesn't say that. He says, truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now and this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. These verses show us that we do lose something by following Jesus, but we also gain more in this life and eternal life in the next by following him. It's important to know that when we plug our ears and run, we're not just leaving things behind. We're going to Jesus, who's promises so much more than anything we can leave. We need to encourage those who are plugging their ears to messages around them and encourage them, that encourage them to abandon their faith or abandon particular aspects of their faith. This necessitates a proximity and mutual vulnerability. It's not just, that, not just that others need to be encouraged, but I need to be encouraged in that as well. Being isolated as a Christian is a dangerous place to be 
walking through a world that is not our home. We all need to be encouraged in our faith, so let's seek ways to find find ways to do that together. And one way that we do here, that here at this church is through church membership, where we commit together as a local body. And if you're interested in that, there's a space in the Connect card where you can indicate that, and you can turn that in when we have our offering time today. So back to Matthew. In verses 32 through 33, Peter and Jesus get back in the boat, and the storm immediately ceases. Peter and those in the boat finally recognize what the demons have been proclaiming in Matthew for a while now. Jesus is the Son of God. And unlike the demons who trembled in fear, these disciples worship him in awe at his power to save. The fact that Jesus is worshipped here is remarkable. Because no prophet, no angel, no apostle, no teacher, no person in the Bible ever accepts worship. In fact, they turn people away and and correct them when they mistake them for gods. But Jesus accepts worship. Worshiping or serving other things will leave us empty and unsatisfied. But as we heard last week, Jesus satisfied completely because he is God and we were made to worship him and there's nothing more right than to do that. And the final verses in this chapter show that Jesus and the disciples arrive in Genesaret, and Jesus continues his compassionate care for the physical needs of the people in that region. Jesus freely saves Peter when he calls out to him, and he freely heals these people when they put their faith in him, even just to touch the hem of his garment. We see Jesus heal again and again out of his compassion in the Gospels, but this wasn't his primary mission. In Matthew 1.27, the angel tells Joseph, she, that's Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This is Jesus' primary mission. But in his compassion, he's showing that caring for the material needs of people is not a distraction, but a natural companion to pointing to people's spiritual need for Jesus. People in cities that Jesus had been to would hear what he did for them on the cross and believe because they had already experienced his power and his compassion. And it's likely that some of those here in Genesaret who had faith to come and touch the hem of Jesus the healer put their faith in Jesus the redeemer who died to forgive them from their sins. I'm sure if you were an attorney or future attorney that was hoping to work for Ropes and Gray in Boston, you wouldn't settle for the other one. And in the, other, in, in the same way, we shouldn't settle for anything other than who the Bible shows Jesus to be. So who do you believe Jesus is? And where will that take you? Jesus is a king, but trusting in a Jesus who will get us worldly political power, in doing that, we might lose sight of the eternal kingdom that's coming. Jesus is a great teacher, but believing that he's just a man who teaches good moral principles might make us miss the fact that we are in desperate need for grace. In believing in a Jesus who only cares for people's physical needs, we may fail to see the need for Jesus to heal the sickness in our souls. My encouragement to you is to believe in the Jesus that we find in God's word, the one who shows us that he is God come down to us to save us from our sins when we call out to him in faith, who is compassionate about the material needs of others, who walks us through doubt, calms our fears, and calls and empowers us to have greater confidence in him and gives us the grace we need to follow his commands. This is our King Jesus who didn't need to be crowned king because he was born one. 
and he's bringing a kingdom that will last forever. The way to the kingdom is for each of us to call out in faith for him to save and heal us. So this morning, let's see who Jesus is and put our faith in him.